This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Genre emulation. Octagon City. Social media tips. And Ireland uncolonized. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, And, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The smell of pizza and the fumbling with Crown Royal bags tell us we've either entered an illegal high school party or the gaming hut. And the gaming hut today is a somber place. The dice are still... The uh, corn chip bags are not being crinkled yet, as we observe uh, the passing of one of the greats, one of the absolute greats of gaming, uh, gaming design, gaming writing, uh, and just gaming being a great human being at the gaming table, Aaron Alston. My encounters with Aaron were all too brief. I paneled with him once and met him a couple of times at Gen Con and knew him to be a smart, uh, genial guy, so I'm... uh, saddened by his passing from a uh, bit of a remove. Uh, Ken, did you have the chance to work with him? I I never worked with him, and I don't think that I ever met him, and I'm fairly sure I would remember it if I had. I think it was one of those deals where you just always assumed there'd be time to go get uh, Mike Stackpole or Matt Forbeck or someone who was uh, closer friends with him to introduce you, and you could have a few drinks, and then you could be one of the people who got to hang out with Aaron Alston. But um, it's one of those stupid mistakes that you make. You just figure there's always going to be that next Gen Con or that next convention, and you're going to have a chance. And uh, at some point, you run out of Gen Cons. So I never, I never got to meet him. I obviously, I, I read his um, uh, his books. His game designs have influenced my way of thinking about campaigning. Obviously, Strike Force, as anyone who's ever written anything about campaigning can tell you, is probably one of the great how to run a campaign books. But uh, I think that the way that he took champions, uh, I guess twice, and boiled it down into a fundamental best-of-genre, best-of-hero-system uh, emulator uh, just as a game, as a sheer piece of game design. That's just an impressive job. And obviously, I was a great fan of his uh, his novel, Doc She. So I was sort of um, inspired by him at that remove as, you know, a, a, a Padawan to a Jedi Master. And I think one of the reasons for that is that his time in the role-playing industry, per se, predated both of us just by a little bit. And he went on to become a very popular uh, writer, not only of his uh, own fiction, but he's also being mourned in the Star Wars community because people really loved his Star Wars novels. And that's a really difficult space to stand out in. 
and uh, he went on to the uh, world of uh, fiction after uh, having a big impact in gaming. And that impact, if you had to boil it down to him being a pioneer of one thing, uh, would inevitably be a oversimplification. But for the purposes of this podcast segment, I think one of the things that he's really a pioneer of, an early innovator of, is the whole idea of genre emulation. And that he did it within the confines of uh, champions and also while working for Steve Jackson games for a while really shows you how difficult it is to separate out developments and role-playing because you associate both of those games as being from the uh, super crunchy angle and about the movement toward absolute freedom and choice in character design and, and in PC creation as uh almost sort of a sub-hobby unto itself, but here we have uh, Aaron's work coming along and breaking down the way that fictional genres work and trying to find ways to import that into the role-playing game experience. And I was not a uh, champions guy, uh, particularly during the period that he was uh, working, or actually at, at all, really. Um, and his influence on me came through through uh, the medium of Alarm and Excursions, the early, uh, well, still functioning, but uh, the APA, the Amateur Press Association, that sort of backdoored me into the world of role-playing games. And his essays and GM guidance material really had a huge influence on the people uh, writing there. And he wrote at a time when... Uh, GM advice was kind of thin on the ground and is, I guess, could also be seen as a pioneer in there, that area as well. Yeah, I think I think that that's what, um, like I said, Strike Force is one of the absolute, here's how you run a campaign, here's how you run it over a long time. You maintain it, you nurture it, you keep it interesting, you keep it alive. And um, apparently, uh, again, I never got to game with him, but everyone who has said it was a never-to-be-missed experience, and he, he had months-long waiting lists to get into his campaigns at one time. I think he was running three campaigns simultaneously because he had so many people who wanted to play with him, which is a pretty great tribute, you know, to anyone, and certainly to, to someone who's also a great designer like Aaron was. Yet in the, in the genre emulation side of things, uh, obviously he's one of the first, if not the first, but he's one of the very earliest people to sort of try and strike out into taking an existing rule set and tweaking it toward a specific genre as opposed to sort of like the boot hill method where you just well it's you know D and we strip away all the parts that aren't fantasy and give them guns and that's pretty much going to be a western in in D, &D terms uh and when he takes lands of mystery and he's trying to basically build a um uh, a pulp fantasy or a pulp hidden worlds romance type stuff into uh the hero system for justice incorporated there's um, there's a lot of sort of things that he, he sort of showed you about. I mean, we take it for granted now that you toggle something on to get this effect or off to get that effect. But back in the day, it was very much a you play the whole system or you don't play the whole system. There wasn't a thing where you could say, all right, in this place, we're going to only use half the spell list. Or in this place, we're only going to do, you know, a knockback is going to be doubled or, or whatever. And that that's, if you look at it, that's sort of, you know, he not only points the way towards all of those sorts of... Um, you know, tweaks of Hero and, and, and tweaks of GURPS, but also to things like Ravenloft, where they're saying, if we want to do D&D as gothic horror, this is the, the changes you make in the fundamental game structure. And I think that that's, that's something that it's still, uh, I don't want to say it's ahead of its time still, but it's something that 
it's a surprisingly difficult sell to a lot of people that you would have thought started playing games after genre emulation had begun, uh, where you have to say, no, we're, we're playing a genre, we're not actually playing what would happen if this was the real world of physics type stuff. Right, and I think that's uh, the fundamental challenge of, of genre emulation, because players want to be able to predict the outcomes of their actions when they're making decisions. Mm -hmm. And in part, a lot of players, uh, particularly of a certain age group, tend to come from a computer programming or engineering background or even law or accounting and have a very ground-up, logic-based way of seeing the world. And if you decide that your world is a simulation, it's easy to think of how your, or, or easier to think of how your actions uh, might have various different results and then evaluate what the smart choice is to make in a situation. Once you get into the realm of genre emulation, the question is not always what would happen if this happened in the real world with real world physics, but what would happen if this was a story? And then you get into the tricky question of, first of all, you don't want players at the table necessarily thinking their way through a decision tree in terms of, well, this is a fictional construct, and so obviously the most interesting outcome is this, so I'm going to work toward that. Although certainly in lots of storytelling games where you are more consciously taking on the role of co-storyteller, that's exactly what you do. That's uh, what you do a lot of times in drama system, for example. But in a more traditional game where there are mysteries and challenges and the GM has a sort of a theatrical role to reveal the story to you a bit at a time and confront your characters with a challenging environment, you all kind of have to agree what the logical outcome of an action is. So, for example, one thing that's still very sticky to deal with in genre emulation is the whole question of a uh, one character getting the drop on another with a gun, right? We see this all the time in fiction. In you know, you're, there probably isn't a hard-boiled detective movie where at one point some non-player character in this framework uh, comes up to the main character and puts a gun on him and either takes him prisoner or forces him to listen to a monologue or uh, tries to take him to another location to waylay him. And there are important dramatic reasons for that to be the case. And generally, in most of our rule sets, all we take into account is, you know, how much damage does a gun do when you fire it? And for kind of game-based reasons, uh, guns tend to be less deadly in role-playing games than they are in real life, especially when fired from point-blank range. So often the rules don't take into account the fact that here in this situation, this guy's threatening you with a gun, and he has to have the credible threat of being able to down you in one shot when you know that the standard rules don't allow for that. So then the designer's challenge becomes finding a way to model that, and it's not impossible to do. It's just something that happens to be on my mind because I'm working on Feng Shui and I have to have a drop rule for that. Right. Yeah. But it's something where a physics-based logic is immutable, but genre emulation logic is fungible based on the dramatic context. And how do you present that in a way that the fungibility isn't just confusing to players trying to find the logic that allows them to make decisions in different situations? And, and again, the example has to be, not the example, but the system has to be open enough that people don't feel like 
you know, they're, they're the P being dropped into one end of the Bruce Willis movie and they come out the other end of the Bruce Willis movie and there was a lovely Bruce Willis movie coming happening all around them and maybe they even got to play Bruce Willis, but their choices and their actions were so constrained by the narrowness of the dramatic form that they really didn't, uh, they, they didn't have any sort of ability to affect a uh, story, right? They, they could affect, you know, maybe which mook they shot or, or what they said when they off the main villain, but they didn't really have any ability to break out of the, the very narrow act structure. And something like getting the drop on you is a great example, because in some cases, getting the drop, the only reason it exists is to allow the villain to monologue. And then once the villain stops monologuing, you know, Jackie Chan or whoever, then, you know, kicks the guy next to the guy with the gun, and he falls in the gun, and blah, 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 and he's Jackie Chan. And literally, the only reason he didn't do that, you know, nine minutes ago was so that the villain could do the monologue and so that the audience could understand what's going on in the story. But you can't very well do that because, first of all, movies are different from games, and because, second of all, no one would take anything seriously if you knew that, you know, getting the drop on you only lasted nine minutes. So you have to sort of present a a large palette of options, I think, for the GM so that they can have a bunch of dramatic situations that are all recognizably part of the same genre, but that once you've entered the beginning of the game, you don't immediately know, okay, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to meet a girl. She's going to be captured. I'm going to have to work with the guy I don't want to work with because we're working together. We can use our skills. We're going to fight a guy's. Uh, we're going to get beaten up, but we're going to get clues. We're going to go back, beat up some more guys. Those guys will run. Then we'll face a boss monster. He'll beat us up. Then we'll go after the big bad. And, you know, it's you can't have that automaticity to it, even in a genre that is, you know, pretty much as constrained as the, as the modern action film or the classic uh, high-era Hong Kong film, because the fun at the table is not just watching the balletic grace of the kicking people in the head, which is the fun of the movie part. The fun is sort of working within the constraints to tell a story that you want to tell and having a meaningful interaction with the story and with the GM. Yeah, and another thing about uh, genre emulative games is you have to get players comfortable with the idea that their agency traditionally ebbs and flows. Um, In genre narrative, the heroes are not always afforded maximum freedom at all times to do everything. Mm -hmm. They tend to have choice points, which lead to a set of circumstances that kind of uh, narrow in on themselves and then widen out again. And if you want to just be able to at all times tinker with what's going on and go off in a different direction, that can certainly work in a very sandboxy game where your uh, GM is adept at improvisation. But it's uh, something that's actually becomes unique to the role-playing form rather than something that you see in a lot of the fiction that you start to emulate. So that really the relationship between simulation and emulation is sort of a continuum, and it's one that kind of moves back and forth even over the course of a game session and will move back and forth over the course of a rule set, right? That you can't, you can theoretically have a pure simulationist uh, logic game, but you can't have a pure uh, genre emulation game, in part because there are things that come up in play where the story consequences are not immediately obvious to you as a GM, and you need to be able to just sort of grab a random idea. And at that point, sort of the physics of the world or the economic logic of the world or whatever outside form of logic you want to bring in is a, a useful tool when you're trying to come to a decision and also 
you know, in moderation provides a sense of verisimilitude. But the, again, that goes back to the challenge of letting the players know when uh, genre logic is applying and when external logic applies. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, so much of genre emulation at the table, at least, depends on players who are both familiar with the genre, which is not super hard if you're playing a relatively open or accessible genre, but players who are willing to live in that genre, even when it means they don't get a flanking bonus, or even when it means that they, you know, can't uh, do X, Y, or Z. And because, as you say, the GM is going to have periods where they have to leave genre space, if only to think about what possible set of options could happen next, they're going to see it being broken, and it's always the temptation to follow the GM up to the sunny uplands of rationalism, especially if the rationalism means that, oh, of course, I have a gun. There's no number of ninjas that can threaten me. Um, I just stay, you know, 50 yards away from them and shoot them in the head, and the problem is solved. So you have to sort of figure out a a degree of, I don't want to say maturity, but I guess a degree of comfort, a degree of sort of mutual comfort at being uh, occasionally on the wrong side of the genre dice or a wrong side of the genre convention that doesn't always exist in people who are just playing the game because they only want to kill things because they've had a bad day at work, or they're only playing the game because the only thing that they want to do is... Um, uh, maximize their character's power in in the universe, something like that, that they're looking at as, as either a space control war game type thing or just as a battle sim. And I, I guess that maybe is there, do you think that it's possible? I mean, being the Robin's Laws guy, do you think it's possible that genre emulation games, speaking broadly, only function with a minimum or no war gamers or what do I want to say? Uh, Killbots? Um, I, I think that you can uh, channel killbotism into uh, a group and sort of, okay, here's here's the chance where you get to, um, obviously you have to be emulating a genre where, you know, you get to go crazy on a bunch of dudes with a sword at some point, but that's yeah. most of them. No Regency romance. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the bigger challenge actually is the uh, subset of our tribe who are actually feel pretty disconnected from fictional portrayals of things. They may like the outside accoutrements of genre they may like spaceships and laser guns but they may actually not watch very many movies or tv series or the person who has all of star trek memorized but uh sits there with arms folded the whole way through complaining about all of the uh implausibilities in it and is unwilling to embrace those implausibilities, which are basically usually storytelling conceits that make stories work efficiently, that that's the player that's kind of tricky to integrate. Well, do you think that that player, I mean, by definition, isn't that player going to be tricky to integrate into anything because they're not willing to engage with creativity, especially if creativity has to break one or another of the pesky physical laws of the universe? I mean, even that player in GURPS is the guy who's complaining that the GURPS windage rules aren't accurate or that um, uh, in Champions they're objecting because they're, or in Hero System they're objecting because the, the Barrett 50 caliber actually um, uh, engages the, you know, the liquid tissue of the body different from the solid tissue. And if you really wanted to model how that gun shot, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, isn't that... Right. There, there are different levels of that guy, right? That guy at least has 
a grounding to argue in GURPS, mm -hmm. uh, but has no idea how to deal with it if it's just like, well, we're not paying attention to the distance between star clusters for dramatic effect, right? Mm -hmm. That that the, the one gives them a ground to argue, and there's a percentage of people who show up at the gaming table because they like to argue, and uh, the, the Venn diagram of those two things may intersect to some <laughs> degree. But, you know, again, I guess it's, you know, to use the, the cop-out term, that's uh, uh, yet another continuum. Um, and as far as continuums are concerned, the one thing where there is a hard break between one thing and another is this podcast where we move on to other segments. And I think we're going to do that just now. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. You know this because you are supernally attentive to the sponsors who keep our show going. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and a Herald, and the Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending <laughs> cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? Have at it, good sir. There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. The rattle of frogs as they fall onto our roof, and the sad giant red eyes of the big black dog in the corner tell us that we've uh, once more entered the confines of the Liptony Hut, but this week those confines are octagonal in nature as, dun, dun, we, dun. as we pick up a uh, thread. We dropped a few episodes back when we looked at unbuilt utopias and also were satisfying a request by our pal and colleague James Cambius who wants us to delve into the geometrical world of a uh, reformer, uh, phrenologist, and architectural eccentric Orson S. Fowler and his uh, octagon city. Ken, can you start out by putting Fowler in his historical context? Orson Squire Fowler, and I was so hoping he would be Orson Scott Fowler because that would have been so much fun. But sadly, Orson Squire Fowler was a phrenologist, and he was one of the big phrenologists. If you were a phrenologist... Uh, fanboy back in the 19th century, you knew Orson Squire Fowler, and I think part of it is because he was a brother act. It was, there was him and his uh, brother Lorenzo Niles Fowler, 
And I'm beginning to think that maybe the unsung hero is uh, their father, uh, Horace Fowler, because that's a guy who's gifted at naming people. I, I like this guy. Um, so, so that mean Niles Crane is possibly an octagon reference? It could be. It could be. It's it, it's a reference to a lot of things because the source of the Nile obviously is code for alchemical wisdom. But that's a different show. Yes. Yeah, so this raises, first of all, the whole epistemological question of whether this, in fact, is an elliptony hut or a consulting occultist. If he, He's a phrenologist as well. So. Yes. Well, um, I mean, and, and I guess the, the, the sort of the question is because in the era in which he's, he's working and he's uh, doing his big... Uh, phrenologing in the uh, sort of the 1830s uh, up till his, his um, uh, sad and tragic death in 1887. I don't believe that he died of being hit on the head, but uh, who can say? But uh, phrenology, by the way, to back it up just a little further, for those who don't know, was sort of an early attempt at psychology in that you determined people's sort of nature, their their personality, by the uh, types and sizes of bumps on their head and where they were placed. And so you'd measure someone's skull and find all the irregularities, and if someone had a larger bump uh, over the area uh, for creativity, you knew that they were going to be an artist or maybe that they have a creative side that they needed to express more. And it's not, you know, I mean, certainly in terms of, uh, you know, performance, it's no different from Freudian uh, psychoanalysis where you talk about someone's childhood, but it's uh, more fun to measure people's skulls. And the phrenologists at this point have not been, I mean, they've been debunked because there are people debunking them just like there were people debunking everything. But uh, the phrenologists are not uh, considered to be just, you know, flat out crazy the way that we consider them now. So it's not... Right. They style themselves as uh, scientists rather than as workers of uh, supernatural power. And more to the point, I think that the average person who knows stuff about uh, skulls is also at least willing to say, well, we don't know enough to say where you're wrong. It's, it's not at the point where, uh, I mean, now someone is, could be a phrenologist and style themselves a scientist and we would just laugh at them. But the other thing that our buddy Orson Squire Fowler is doing is his uh, sister-in-law, Lydia Folger Fowler, who is Lorenzo's wife, they were all of them phrenologists, and they were all also sort of social reformers. They talked about child labor, and they talked about um, feminism. Uh, Lydia Folger Fowler was a big buddy with uh, Amelia Jenks Bloomer and was part of the Seneca Falls Conference that sort of kicked off uh, women's rights in America in 1848, and also was, again, in this sort of uh, wonderful upstate New York where everything magical and crazy happens in the 19th century. So all of these sort of currents, you can't really sort of go in and say, well, the phrenology and the octagons is crazy, but the women's rights and the child labor reform, that's uncrazy because it's all part of the same sort of social commentary. And phrenology, just like uh, Freudianism, is also a way of, of sort of providing a, a a less reactionary social structure because it's if, if it's the bump on your head that made you a criminal, then it's not your sin, right? So now we have a, a social problem to deal with, people with bumps on their head, how do we deal with this, as opposed to if you just, you know, toss that guy in the clink, he'll stop being a criminal. Well, no, you won't, because his bump is still going to be there. And the same thing happens with modern, you know, psychology theory, where it's like, no, this guy's, you know, got a predilection to be a criminal, he's got a, a, a compulsion, he's, he's, all these things that are not sin and evil, which is the old sort of, um, you know, traditionalist explanation for why things go wrong. So a lot of these things are sort of the same sort of, of intellectual current, and whether or not they are more or less respectable is sort of a, you know, at the time, they're all equally respectable and equally crazy, and then later on, we've come to believe that women voting is not crazy, but phrenology is, and that's sort of a, you know, 
by their fruits you shall know them type thing, but it's not anything you could tell a priori in 1850. And now we're more interested in uh, genetic influences on uh, what's inside the skull than on the exterior shape of the skull. Right, but the critique of, of society remains applicable across patterns. But the larger right. point so, is... So, so this is all well and good, but so far their discussion is not octagonal. It's not octagonal. Well, among his many interests, including phrenology, were housing, because again, if you're looking at, 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 the, at the conditions of the poor, you realize that they pretty much live in crummy houses. And he believed, and you know, pretty much incontrovertibly, that an octagon makes more sense for a house than a square does, because you use up more of the land, it's cheaper to heat, it's cheaper to build, you get more living space out of the spot, you get more light, and it cools off in the summer. And all of that is because octagons have more and shorter walls, and so a better flow-through of air, especially because once you're living in an octagon, it's much harder to build a lot of interior uh, straight walls that uh, funnel the air the other way. And uh, the sad thing being that Fowler was not an architect, he was a phrenologist, so his book, The Octagon House, had to sort of be picked up by other architects who kind of turned it into a, a big trend. It became a giant fad um, in the 19th century, especially after he published his book. And I think it was one of these deals where it's not where famous house designer is also phrenologist. It's famous phrenologist is also house designer. And so it's like if you um, uh, are buying books by, by Oprah's cook. You know, you're not interested in Oprah's cook. You're interested in Oprah. And, and this guy, of course, is Oprah and the architect in the same thing. But it's the, the concept is that he's using his celebrity as a phrenologist to then push for octagonal houses. So had a someone who is famous first as an architect then tried to spread octagonal houses, would we currently be living in octagonal houses? I, I think we might have, although I think that we probably would have stopped again once we started building houses more industrially. One of the reasons that octagon houses work really well is because they are ideal for the Victorian level of hand craftsmanship, where you have a lot of cheap uh, carpenters and masons, and you can bring them in. And so th that's why they're building all those bow windows and, and towers and runlets onto their houses is because literally construction is, is, is much cheaper. So you can do more fiddly construction when you're putting up your house. I don't know that, you know, the octagon, um, if, uh, you know, I don't know who the, the, let's say, you know, Stanford White had been a giant octagon fan. If we'd have, if we'd have octagon houses now, because I think that the, the, the pernicious effects of modernism and the ameliatory effects of Frank Lloyd Wright might still have deoctagonized us. But there might be more octagons than there are, but there's still plenty. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of them. They built, you know, probably thousands of them, hundreds of, uh, maybe tens of thousands at the time, and there's still about 2,000 standing in North America. Sadly, not Fowler's Folly, his own majestic octagon house, which had a 44 42-foot side octagons. The octagon was 100 feet across. <laughs> it was uh, seven stories tall, and he um, had, I think, something like 100 rooms in it by the time he was all done with it. Uh, sadly, the uh, financial panic of 1857 sort of undermined his finances, which had all been put, no doubt, in, you know, skull-measuring stocks or something, and... Uh, well, it, d it didn't help that he named his house Fowler's Folly. That, that seems uh, <laughs> bad advertising it, in retrospect. It, it does, and I, I suspect that maybe he did. He called it uh, Fowler's Awesome Octagon House, and uh, society, as it will, had its own vote. So, was society right? Well, I don't know, because the house, you know, it was neglected pretty badly. He had to, he had to rent the house after the panic. Then it went through a series of owners, and, you know, just like most property that isn't maintained, it turned terrible and was knocked down. Right, but F Fowler's house that was wrecked by the financial 
panic just doesn't have the same ring doesn't to it. Doesn't have the same ring. It's I think not that people, of... people saw it as a folly because it was an enormous freaking house. I mean, a seven-story Victorian, that's pretty impressive, I think. Um, and I think if you saw it rising up there above Fishkill, New York, you might think it was a little strange. Some, some nimbyism might ensue. <laughs> I think some, yes. He, he was also a big fan of concrete, which is interesting. A precursor to the brutalists. <laughs> if brutal, brutal octagons could be spangling our land e'en now if he and his uh, theories had, uh, had taken off just a little more. So yes, uh, that's basically the, the story of Orson Square Fowler. He lives a long and mostly happy life. During his his highlight, they brought him in to be a publisher, and he published Walt Whitman. So he earns the great thanks of every American student of literature, certainly, and uh, every American fan of poetry, which hopefully is a larger set, but one doubts it sometimes. And um, he then, you know, sort of he loses his fortune in the various economic crunches, begins to move to a series of smaller and smaller towns. He got married three times, so apparently his personal life was relatively full. He had three kids. Uh, but uh, sadly... Um, besides leaves of grass and uh, child labor laws, he doesn't leave us much because his octagon well, houses. If, if I did either of those things, I'd be uh, I, I'd consider my work done. Frankly, that's pretty pretty good. Frankly, yeah. I mean, obviously, if if you if you publish leaves of grass, that is pretty good for the tombstone. But I think he wanted there to be more octagons involved. Um. So if your character uh, uh, bursts through a dimensional portal and arrives in an alternate present in which everyone lives in octagons, what does he know about the society he is confronting? Um, <laughs> uh, well, first of all, that they're probably all spiders or, or run by spiders or octopuses, right? The, the, the notion that you've got this uh, eight-sided construction everywhere, I think that that can certainly be made cabalistic and weird. There was a, um, it, the reason that it sort of came up in our uh, utopian context is that there was a whole city of octagons uh, called Octagon City that was planned uh, for, uh, and I say planned at the most remote possible use of that term. Uh, blue skied? Uh, blue skied for um, a flat spot in Kansas in 1856. And the best part about the Octagon City is that it was founded by a guy who wanted to settle Vegetarian City, but was expl it was explained to him by the big money men that there was no money in vegetarianism, <laughs> and he'd need to build something to get the punters in first before he could build Vegetarian City. Sex appeal, like the Octagon. Like Octagon. So the Octagon City is literally the um, uh, the lowest common denominator, loss leader, bring them in, get their money early, big uh, razzle-dazzle to get them into Vegetarian City. But sadly, Octagon City did not have uh, water or any uh, mills, and therefore the settlers who did show up at Octagon City were rapidly beset by Indians and uh, uh, border ruffian Confederate jerks and <laughs> malaria and uh, bad weather and Kansas, and then they all left. But if you show up and Octagon City is, is uh, rising there on the Kansas Prairie, or is one of many Octagon Cities rising there on the Kansas Prairie, I think that you you have to suspect that something supernatural, but in the ideally, uh, the way that I like my supernatural, sort of off-kilter and off-center and not immediately visible is going on. Now, as a footnote, uh, listener Brian Rombo points out that there was a plan to create Hexagonopolis in Ottawa, that there were a vogue for hexagonal street planning uh, about a century ago, and I uh, think the reason that was abandoned is that if you build a city with a hex pattern, it renders it vulnerable to attack by panzer leaders. But I just thought we would note that the, the Canadian approach to an octagon city is an hexagon city, because Canada is 
like America, but more sensible. Like America, but too smaller. The uh, the uh, the hexagon also um, was theorized by a, a lot of people, not just in Canada. There was a, sort of a big fad for it in urban design, um, but uh, when the money was actually there in uh, the post-World War II era, when they started really building out suburbs and planned developments, although obviously they would go back to the Romans just like concrete does, they chose uh, cul-de-sacs and loops for their sort of uh, expandy clusters. And uh, whether or not uh, hexagonal design would have been um, the way to go with suburbs, I'm not sure. But I think that if you see um, a si- an older city center with hexagonal suburbs and octagonal planned communities out there, I think that we are definitely entering into the old spider versus the mosquito war that uh, Nick Mamadis talks about in his excellent novel, Sensation. So you should check that out. And uh, you're, the hidden war between... Uh, uh, wasps and spiders that uh, that powers all human history and sensation obviously could very well have blossomed on the prairies of North America in the war between hexagonal suburbs and octagonal utopia towns. If that's not a concluding note, I don't know what is. If you're like many gamers, and only you know if you are, you dig not only D20s and formless entities, but also open source creativity and metal music. Combine those passions by opening your ear holes to the thunder of the Open Metal Cast podcast with horse throwing host Craig Maloney. It's got trad metal, death metal, technical metal, black metal, instrumental metal, battle metal, club metal, Precambrian metal. What? What's Precambrian metal? I don't know. I just made that one up. But uh, shouldn't that be a metal? It absolutely should. And when someone invents it, the Open Metalcast will have it. Whether you need your metal to write by, as soundtrack music for your Viking raid, or just to drown out the pesky squirrels in your head, open source your listening needs with the Open Metalcast podcast. Available wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. The cheerful bing of an updating... Kickstarter page, the rattle of the card through the square reader, and the occasional clang of a nickel bouncing across the countertop tell us we've entered the business of gaming. And Robin, uh, here in the business of gaming, is business good in the business of gaming? I I think one thing that is uh, making business boom to the extent that business is booming, of course, is our new internet uh, distribution system, our internet awareness system, and that uh, through uh, Kickstarter, as you mentioned, a lot of other things, there are all sorts of new ways to make people aware of uh, your games and interested in picking them up. They're you know, now this huge stream of electronic products, and we haven't completely divorced ourselves from the, uh, the old ways as the increasing challenges of uh, doing Kickstarters and involve shipping physical products tell us. But I thought that since a lot of people who listen to the show are thinking of releasing their own games or are releasing their own games, that it might be interesting to go through our own tips and tricks that we employ in our social media profiles. So Ken, how would you uh, describe your approach to social media? Well, I I would say haphazard is probably the best way to describe it if you were being, you know, sort of objective and mean. Um, But I think of my social media, uh, the the goal of the social media is is twofold. One, it's the same as everyone's goal to tell you what I'm eating for dinner. And the other one is sort of to provide a feeling of a, um, 
I don't want to say intimacy because that's not what I want, but a feeling of comfort and familiarity and friendship with people who I don't get to meet because not everyone comes to games and not everyone comes out to conventions. And so if I've got a, a fan or a reader in, you know, Portugal or I've got a fan or a reader, you know, who just doesn't travel a lot but lives, you know, in suburban Illinois, they can read my Facebook feed or they can look at my Twitter and they can say, yeah, I'm, I feel comfortable with that guy. I'm happy to, uh, if they're on the bubble and, and they're saying, well, I wouldn't ordinarily buy a book about a Sumerian conspiracy that's changing the languages of the world, but I like Ken and most of the things that he, he says are pretty sound. He seems like a, a right guy. I'll, I'll, I'll pay the nine bucks and, and get that PDF or, or whatever the thought process is. The goal is to get them sort of, um, I don't say, uh, invested, but at least interested, positive feeling towards uh, me as a creator and me as a, you know, sort of presence on their bookshelves or on their, on their laptop. Right. And another benefit of that positive feeling in an age where everything, especially electronic products, are easily freeloaded, which is my new favorite term rather than pirated. <laughs> yes, I, I like that one. That's, I like that better than F20 even. I think this is another one that we want to spread because I think it tells it more like it is. Mm -hmm. That if people feel that they know you, that they're your internet pal, and they indeed get the sense that you're a regular creative person uh, struggling to get by as all creative people uh, are, except at the very, very top of the totem pole, and that totem pole doesn't have very many uh, gaming... <laughs> slots on it, no. certainly. <laughs> Very few. Yes. But they, uh, the people are going to be a little more cautious about whether they choose to uh, freeload your work rather than supporting it uh, either through uh, Kickstarter or conventional sales or whatever future avenue you, you choose to disseminate your work in. And so that, I think, points out one of my number one tips, which is balancing your desire for self-expression versus putting your best self forward. And so one thing that I do take notice of is the, you know, it's not like I never say anything negative, but I do want people to enjoy the things that I uh, post in, in social media. And I really want to pick my battles in terms of uh, when I'm expressing political annoyance. So, uh, for example, you know, some people, their political views are very central to uh, who they are and what their creative work is. And I'm certainly not telling people not to introduce that, but that I personally am drained by political outrage rather than invigorated by it. And <laughs> so I try to, you know, really choose where I go in that area. And one of the reasons for that is that often, even if you are posting something rather innocuous, there are people out there who are spoiling for uh, a debate on a divisive issue. And i am unhappy when a innocent Facebook post suddenly turns into a brouhaha. And I will, since you can do this on, on Facebook, uh, you know, I will nip those in the bud uh, just because all of the attempt to create a sense of friendly connection is going to go south if there's all of this uh, anger and culture war contention emanating around your work, which is not necessarily what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, I'm, you know, I guess out as a Republican or whatever, and have never made any, you know, bones about it. And I think that, you know, my political ideology, my political beliefs are as central to me as anything, you know, outside religion can be. But one of the great things about being a conservative is by definition, I don't believe that the personal and the political are the same thing. So since I'm reaching out to people on a personal level as a creator, 
that that's not the same thing as my political beliefs, and I don't really think that those necessarily have to, you know, march in lockstep, and I don't owe everyone an update on tax policy or on, you know, whatever the scandal of the day is. Because they're hankering for that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, God knows. Um, I mean, and that could have been a, a career for me. I, I could have turned to political writing or, you know, gone to work in Washington at a think tank or whatever. That's certainly, you know, a path that could have been open. But, uh, you know, I'm not I, I enjoy politics. Uh, unlike you, I'm not um, uh, drained by political argument. I'm I'm jazzed up by it, but I'm jazzed up by a lot of things that I shouldn't do in public. So I um, uh, I'm happy to keep my sort of social media presence um, just you know uh, I want to say nonpartisan, but non-political and certainly non-politicized. Uh, if people are you know out there and they really absolutely are never ever ever going to buy anything anyone who ever disagreed with them politically is going to make. Well, they're going to have a very small bookshelf and a and, and a well, they're going to have a small bookshelf and probably a slightly larger movie shelf, but that's about it. But I think most people, as long as you have not gone out of your way to you know anger or alienate them, will say, well, you know that his his what he thinks is what he thinks, and in the meantime, he writes a good Templar, so I'm gonna I'm gonna buy his book. And and that's an area where you know I've obviously that tip is seriously hedged, which is not don't engage uh, your political self publicly, but understand what your goal is in trying to do that and the extent to which that intersects with your other goals. One more prosaic tip that I would give is that we are now living sort of in a post-blog world where most people consume their links and information through uh, Twitter and Facebook, and in the case of our community, uh, Google+. But uh, in the land of the blind, the person who still has an RSS reader is king. And so that if you are still following a lot of other sources of information, you can then find the cool links that will give people additional content uh, on top of the times when you choose to talk about your work. And I, for example, try to have a couple of cool uh, links every weekday in addition to uh, whatever links I may have to Stone Skin Press or the games that I'm doing for right. Pelgrane or Atlas or whatever it is that I'm um, working on uh, at the time. And there's a because Twitter is so important now, it's sort of fun to try and craft that uh, 140 character headline that makes uh, people interested without fooling them as to you know what exactly the, the link uh, leads to. And I think that uh, that's something that your other interests that also intersect with the interests of your audience. That's a way that you can bring additional value to your social media feed and uh, sort of create a, a web of associations beyond just uh, what it is that you're uh, working on at any given time. Yeah, I think that that sort of goes to a, a more general principle, which is your social media feed, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or, or even your blog, shouldn't just be about selling your books, right? It shouldn't just be, here's my new book. Here's what I'm doing with my new book. Here's a chapter from my new book. Here's how to buy my new book. Here's my Kickstarter. Here's my Kickstarter every day for the next month. Because no one wants to read that. Yeah. It's why they're paying attention to you, but they don't want necessarily just want it exclusively. Right. I mean, what you, what, you, what you want to provide is a reason for someone who is not necessarily... I mean, in, in my ideal universe... My Facebook feed and my Twitter feed are entertaining enough that someone who is not a gamer and is not a um, uh, a, a reader of, of even Lovecraftian fiction will still come back because 
you know, about every couple of days, they're going to see something that makes them go, oh, that's actually interesting, or that's clever, or that's funny, or I enjoy that, or I like that link to that other thing that isn't by Ken, but that Ken also likes. And so I don't really have any real uh, compunction about retweeting something if I see something, you know, on the on the tweets that's that's particularly clever or interesting or well-spoken, I'll retweet it into my feed and not, no, I know I'm diluting the Ken heightness of it, but, you know, appreciating uh, other creators of, of clever stuff is part of being Ken Height. So when uh, Mallory Orkberg says something clever on Twitter, or uh, uh, I will retweet that and consider that sort of like your linking to uh, the thing that you just linked to uh, today or yesterday about um, it turns out that uh, the weather was clear and dry in Greek winters in the classical era. And, and we know this from the plays of uh, Aristophanes and uh, Sophocles and so forth. Yes, we, we know more that they were able to be held during the Dionysia than we do by looking at the actual scripts. But yes, um, uh, we, we, we know this fact. And that little factoid is was an interesting factoid that I followed, just like a good Robin Law's reader does. Um, and so I, I think that, that both of those are ways of sort of broadening out the stream of your content while still making it recognizably, you know, I can look at that that little weather factoid and say, yep, that's a Robin factoid. That comes in a Robin uh, blog, just like someone can look at, uh, you know, my um, uh, uh, true tales of Romanian organized crime that I just tweeted uh, last night and say, yep, that's that's Ken. Ken did that. Right. And if it's linked specifically that you're posting, I would also recommend that you use uh, the bit.ly uh, URL shortener to do that, because that also gives you analytics for how many times somebody is clicking on your version of that link. And then Mm -hmm. you can drill down and see what platforms they're coming from. And you can also see uh, what parts of the world uh, your people who are clicking on your links come from. And you can see just the raw number of clicks you get. And the key there is that if there's something in your portfolio of interests that uh, never gets that many clicks, you can either... Uh, drop it, or you consider whether you still want to keep it. So, for example, uh, things about the business of fiction writing don't get as many clicks as sort of more obviously geeky things, but I'm content to keep doing them in part because that's about uh, creating content. <laughs> so so you, you have all these great analytical tools, and then when they tell you not to do what you're going to do anyway, you say, well, I'm glad I looked at those tools. Now I'm going to do what I was going to do anyway. Couldn't you do what I do and just cut out the middleman and assume that people who are interested in, in you are interested in what you're interested in? Um, no, because there are other things that, for, for example, stuff about writing, I can still put in the Stoneskin uh, Press uh, link, and it gets enough interest that it's worth doing. But if it dipped below a certain level, it wouldn't be worth uh, doing. Right. So you you have a a red line. Yeah. And you can't, and there are other things that I've, uh, you know, stopped uh, paying attention to because they just, uh, for example, more sort of high culture or visual art or art cinema. That's something that I'm very interested in. But Mm -hmm. over time, I've seen that my uh, readers aren't, and there's no other justification on top of that for me to keep doing it. Right. So those are things that I've dropped because I don't have an additional strategy on top of that. And but, if, so, but if you'd made an art film, maybe you would keep doing it. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, because right. then there would be other people, presumably, who are interested in that who would be following me. So, mm-hmm. you know, if Adam McGoyan was big on social media, he would get a lot of clicks from uh, a similar piece that I might get Bupkis from. And another thing is that you sort of have to keep paying attention to those analytics over time because uh, what people are getting out of the different platforms sort of shifts back and forth. So, uh, you know, it used to be, for example, that a fun quip 
would do way better on Twitter than it does on Facebook. And now it tend, now that's kind of flipped in the last three or four months. And uh, that's a sort of an odd development and it may flip back again. And I'm not sure, you know, how much action that tells you to take, except uh, I used to sort of skip uh, some of the uh, quips on Facebook. And uh, now I make sure that they're, that they go to that platform as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think that I mean, this is just me, and again, people who can look at Robin and look at me and know that obviously Robin is the person to follow and emulate, and I am not. But that put, that starts making it way too much like work uh, for me. If I if if, if I had uh, real time numbers on you know something, if I was, and maybe in, in you know if if I start you know launching a ton of Kickstarters, I'll have to rethink this. But if the if the clicks translated into you know cat food for Virgil or uh, paying the mortgage. That would directly that would be something. So if I I follow I follow sales to the extent that I can, but uh, I don't know that I want to spend that extra amount of time, however much it is, on sort of the metadata part of social media. I think that you know at at our level of of um uh, of of creators, you know, in in the thousands and ten thousands of sales, I don't know if we're you know on the margin earning enough per hour. To uh to justify spending an hour on that as opposed to spending an hour either actually writing or spending an hour coming up with you know something else clever to say on on Facebook or or Twitter and hoping that that one hits where the other ones didn't hit. Yeah, I would definitely say don't spend an hour a day on social yeah. media. That's crazy talk. Yeah. Um, but um the thing for me anyway is that uh I can pay attention to it in sort of a burst of micro procrastination. Right, it just takes a a few seconds to uh, post a link. And uh, these are, you know, I read the RSS feeds because I do it for fun. I enjoy mm. following yeah, these things. Like and when magazine, I run basically. across something, I also save it for later. Another big tip is to know the windows of time when your uh, stuff <laughs> that you're tweeting is going to have an impact. Yeah. Once again, people, follow Robin's example, not mine. I, my, I have my loyal social media followers in the middle of the Pacific, I think. Is because I tweet when I'm awake, which is, you know, between, you know, midnight and 6 a.m. East, uh, Central Time. So, you know, people in, in Vladivostok are like, oh, great, the, the day is starting and I can read Ken's tweets. But it's not ideal for English language advertising. Right. And, and I'm not here to say that you're doing it wrong, Ken, because you've, you know, brought a huge stature to uh, your media presence the moment you started it. You were already established. But someone who is uh, thinking of, you know, two years from now, I want to do a Kickstarter. Well, if you're not building a profile for yourself now, you're already too late. Mm -hmm. So uh, what you and not, uh, would need to do where, where Ken can flout uh, these rules as he flouts so many others is... <laughs> I'm a flouter. Basically, the window of attention on the Internet is keyed to Eastern Standard Time. It starts when people go to work in the morning on Monday, uh, and it goes until around five or six, uh, when they knock off, uh, for work. And it, and there's sort of a cluster up sort of until the early afternoon, and then attention starts to wane. And then by about noon on Friday, it dies again until 9 a.m. the next Monday. And so if you're posting all of your stuff in the evening, uh, you are not getting maximum eyeballs on it if that is your goal. Yeah, and again, once, it, like I say, once it actually starts um, having a direct dollar metric, if, if for example, I'm headlining a Kickstarter, or I'm God forbid running a Kickstarter. Yeah, I would start to have to, you know, pay more attention to trying to maximize daylight awake eyeballs because that is how you get clicks. And I, 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 um, uh, I figure my social media is sort of there when it's there, and if people 
are interested in in following me, you know, they'll do what I do with when I'm, uh, you know, looking to see, oh, I wonder what Will Heinmarch wrote, and I'll go back and I'll just read his whole Twitter feed, as opposed to reading my whole Twitter feed, hoping against hope that Will has uh, tweeted dinner with a with a marsupial, or they'll, they'll go to their Facebook page and they'll read their, you know, last couple of weeks of posts. Right, and the whole, your whole, um, all of your output on social media should not be calculated like this. Yeah. Um, I think one of the reasons people in particular will subscribe to you on Twitter is they want to follow the chatter between a group of uh, designers in this case, or, you know, if they were interested in comedy, a group of comedians, or if they're interested mm-hmm. in writers, a group of, uh, you know, literary fiction writers. Uh, if there are people who talk to each other a lot and those communities always develop spontaneously, people will want to follow everybody who's part of that. So you also want to make sure that there is uh, fun and banter because a, you know, this is a medium for self-expression like any other. And also, uh, again, you're creating that sense that you're a, a real person who is fun to hang out with, whose uh, work you don't necessarily uh, want to freeload if you can afford to do otherwise. Right. So anyway, I think the timing and the bit.ly links and the sort of the asking yourself, um, what it, what is it that I'm projecting and, and does it match what, what I want to do uh, when I have a Kickstarter, I think are the main uh, tips that I want to uh, put out there. And I think uh, unless you have any last minute tips for us, we can uh, move on to the next segment. I think my last minute tip would be um, your sort of notion about not being negative about stuff. It, it, it's sort of a general rule for, for blogging, for writing, for life. I think don't punch up or don't punch down. If you're going to be negative about something, don't be negative about someone who did something with a smaller budget than you or fewer people or was just a single creator. Be negative about something that's produced by Disney or by Warner Brothers or something. That's an enormous... Uh, monstrous cabal of overspending and, and slack creativity. And so you can be negative up all day if that's what, you know, floats your boat. Although I would advise not being over negative. But, you know. Right. Or, or be negative in a fun way, right? If it's yeah. a joke that's funny. Right. Uh, that's one thing. And also because it's a joke, it's not necessarily taken with, with deadly serious. So, you know, if you can say something amusing that indicates that you're not. Uh, up for the latest Heroes reboot, mm-hmm. that's different than just saying, I think this thing is going to suck. Well, right, yeah. you know, th- there are lots of people uh, describing how entertainment probably sucks on the internet. And uh, if you're going <laughs> to swim flash, in those you're waters... you're not the best at that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, you, you have to uh, excel at your uh, vituperation, I suppose. Yeah, but the but but in general, um, you know, punching down is, is being a bully, so don't be a bully on the internet because people don't like bullies. And they don't necessarily, you know, confront you. They don't talk to you. They just say, eh, I don't want to buy his stuff. He's a bully. So don't do that. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tells us that we are once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back in time to adjust, bend, fold, spindle, sometimes even mutilate the time stream. And uh, for this, the episode that will drop on St. Patrick's Day, a massive uh, task lies ahead of our intrepid time traveler, one that, as 
a man of Irish-American lineage perhaps threatens to erase him from the time stream if he's too successful. And this is from Ian Keith Boyle, who wants to know how uh, can you might go about preventing the English colonization of Ireland? Yeah, now this is a this is a big job of work um, for a couple of reasons. First, because as you know, Robin, my standard go-to A tactic is to out-drink uh, my temporal foes. And uh, asking me to out-drink uh, anyone in Irish politics is probably... It, it's going to be bad for my liver, regardless of whether or not I can even do it physically. So that is a that's going to be a job of work right there. Um, the other thing, of course, is that much like our sort of our big, a uh, bold, optimistic, large scope uh, time machine things, a lot of these things turn out to be uh, unstoppable in a lot of for a lot of reasons and for a lot of ways. Uh, the, the right the big problem with the English colonization of Ireland, besides that they're filthy Sassanacs, is that. England has four times the population of Ireland, and Ireland is pleasant and delightful. And so, whenever there are four times as many people next to the pleasant, delightful place, the pleasant, delightful place is going to take it in the neck. And certainly, if the pleasant, delightful place is literally filled to the brim with people who could not agree what time of day it was if uh, there was only one watch in the country, the... English invasion of Ireland is such a classic example of let's you and him fight. Uh, the way that the English, would, would, they would land and they would say, hey, Baron over the hill, is it okay if I kill all these guys on this side of the hill? And the Baron says, sure, I hate those guys. And then they do it to that Baron and the next Baron, and sure enough, pretty soon the English have conquered Ireland. And the Irish... And, and that was an MO that worked in a lot of places. It, was, it worked in a lot of places, but it works really, really well in Ireland. The Irish, because of their uh, quite uh, correct attitude towards individualism and truculence, don't like to take a lot of guff. And so, the, sadly, the, among the guff they do not take is the guff of the guy over the next hill saying, maybe we should all get together and resist the English before this gets ugly. And if you look at the history of the Nine Years' War, when uh, the Tyrone Rebellion, kind of the last chance to preserve uh, Irish sovereignty in any meaningful way. Uh, who uh, lost the Tyrone Rebellion for the Irish? I'll give you a hint. It was an Irishman. It was the Irish lords of uh, Leinster, I believe, or Munster, I, f I get it switched around, that basically said, well, if we got to beat up the, our neighbor, then we don't care who the English get to beat up. And so Tyrone is pretty much sold out by um, a different lord. Right, and, th and this is a classic situation of interests in the aggregate don't necessarily filter down to the individual interests of people in power. And that's why you get um, bad results that hurt everybody because the uh, you just had enough people for whom that was the smart play or seemed to be the smart play mm -hmm. that the negative impact occurs. So I did think about going back to the Nine Years' War because that that you get, it, it's sort of the, ang the, the Norman-Irish uh, construct seemed to be pretty stable. Um, they had sort of the makings of a, of a unitary kingdom. They almost seemed like they could pull it off. But then I looked at the Nine Years' War, and th and this is uh, also known as Tyrone's Rebellion. Uh, they beat the hell of the Earl of Ex Essex, and who shouldn't have? Um, they uh, had a, uh, a Spanish fleet at Kinsale that was ready to help them out. It's really sort of the last shot that you get um, in sort of the early modern era to build a what do I want to say, like a, a recognized country like, say, France or, or England or um, uh, Serbia or any of the countries that sort of come together in that era. And so they weren't able to do that because of the, this Irish tradition to uh, screw themselves. And again, it goes down to the, 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 the most recent, the Irish re uh, Revolution in uh, 1916 to circa 1921. Uh, when I was in Cork, I discovered to my shock 
that um, the city of Cork refused to join the Irish Republic because they thought that the Irish Republic, the Irish Free State, had, um, uh, rather the Irish Free State, they were the Irish Republic, had accepted uh, the crown of England as the crown of Ireland, and they wouldn't stand for that. And so, as a result, Eamon de Valera and the Irish Free State used British Marines to burn the city of Cork down and shut down an I- the Irish Republic. So this pattern is not w- a one-time thing. It goes all the way back to Brian Beru. The reason he dies at Clontarf is not filthy, dirty Vikings. It's filthy, dirty Leinstermen who are objecting to being ruled by an Ulsterman. So there's no single point that you can go and you can fix Ireland qua Ireland and say, this is all going to, to line up nice. Right, because that would require a huge cultural shift that makes you identify more with the guy across the next hill who raids your sheep than the guy seven hills over who's uh, coming with the galleon. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is that once you've culturally shifted Ireland that much, I'm not sure it's worth keeping. I mean, part of what I love about Ireland is that it's full of Irishmen. And if you, if, it, <laughs> if, if it wasn't... It's, it's if, in the name. If it, yeah, I mean, if it was just as, as, as boring and, and straightforward as, as, as Surrey, I mean, Surrey's lovely, it's very pretty, but it's not Ireland. And so I'm, I'm not sure that I, I necessarily want to fix Ireland by making it not Ireland. So the only way that you can sort of preserve Ireland from England, then, is to break England, which I don't have nearly as big a problem with. And, again, you can look sort of at all kinds of places. You don't want to drown Alfred the Great um, uh, in the swamp when he's out there hiding from the Danes. Maybe that works, maybe that doesn't. There's, there's a lot of sort of possible places for, 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 uh, for England, but I think that simplest is best. And if you can just keep England divided between north and south... Because if you look at England now, that's a division that still exists. If you look at the voting patterns, uh, labor is all north of the of the Tyne or the Humber, whichever river it is, and then it's all uh, conservative, pretty much south of it. There's you know very clear divergences between North and South England, and that's because the Danes ran Yorkshire and that and, and the, the North in general for a couple of few centuries, long enough to sort of un-England it just enough that it feels like a different country. So I think if you can... They've planted the seeds for Ikea and socialism. Exactly. And so if I, if you can, if you can splinter, or split rather, splintering England uh, was done by the, by the Anglo-Saxons, who are nearly as impossible to deal with as the Irish, but not they quite. They splintered a lot of things. They did. And, and so the, the, the place to create that break, I think, is the Battle of Stamford Bridge, where Harold Hardrada has invaded England because... Uh, they're not letting him be king of Norway, and so he figures he'll be king of England. And he actually may have been king of, of Norway at that time, but the larger point is he wanted to be king of England. Harold of England did not want him to be king of England. They said they already got a king, Harold. They don't need a taller one. And they met at Stanford Bridge, and Harold uh, beat off the, the, the Norse, drove them away, slaughtered them in, their, in, their, in, the, in a welter, and then immediately got himself killed by William the Conqueror a week later. So, good for you, Harold. Nice way to waste a victory. So, I figure that if... You let Stanford Bridge be a sort of a foregone conclusion. You 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 reverse Stanford Bridge, but you leave Harold's army pretty much intact, so that he can then beat William the Conqueror, and you don't have that Norman um, uh, war machine coming aboard. You can probably keep England split up pretty nicely. And I think that the way to change Stanford Bridge is just warn the Norse that the English are coming. Uh, do a little Paul Revere. Uh, it turns out that the reason the English were able to slaughter the Norse is half of them were across the river, they didn't have their armor on, and they were lazing around in the sun because it was a nice day, and they figured the English army was like, what, a week away? There's no way they're going to get here. They did not count on Harold uh, Godwinson being a really awesome war leader and a pretty decent king, and he got his army from uh, the south coast to Stamford Bridge in four days, 
which I don't think you could do that now, uh, much less in the, the 11th century, uh, certainly not walking and carrying spears. And so he uh, managed to get his whole army up there in four days, caught the Vikings, like I say, uh, sitting on the, on the shores of the river, sunning themselves, armorless, slaughtered about a th- uh, two-thirds of them, and then the other third nearly beat him but by that time, you know, their morale was down, press of numbers, et cetera, et cetera. He winds up taking out, I think, of the thousand ships that had come, 34 go back to uh, to um, Norway. So three and a half percent of the invasion survives. That's like Napoleon numbers. So I think that you can um, uh, you can probably get a standoff or a sound beating if you just warn the uh, Norse that the Herald is coming and you warn them when there's just enough time for them to get across the river and get into their armor, but not enough to catch him on the march. And I think you can time that out pretty well. So I just warn Harold Hardrada, you know, hey, wake up. This would be maybe one of the rare cases I have to sober someone up instead of get them drunk. Um, but uh, get Harold Hardrada up, get his army up, have them on one side of the bridge. Harold comes to the other side of the bridge. There's a squabble over the bridge. The Norse are not going anywhere. Harold still has to go back and take out William the Conqueror. And now we have a South England that is recognizably pretty much England, and you have a North that is the North. And with those guys always able and willing to get up each other's nose, no one's going to have the energy necessary to conquer. Well, they may not be able to conquer Wales, much, not much, much less Ireland. But I think that at this point, I've bought Ireland at least a couple of centuries to get its act together. And if it is going to organically create a state that is still Irish, but also capable of defending itself, it's going to be in those 300 years before one or the other side gets strong enough to try uh, sending troops. But even then, the Irish will still have an ally just across the, the Humber, and they'll be able to um, uh, to maybe get a breathing space there. I think that's pretty much your, your best shot. Now, I would say, uh, you know, even with your proposal to uh, essentially bury Sparta, that this is the time mission that promises the greatest possible change to the time stream. So uh, what does uh, history look like if Time Incorporated uh, approves this mission and lets you do it? Well, it looks vastly different, uh, almost unimaginably different, because one of the things that happens is the Normans, if you assume that they don't conquer England, pretty much are now in the mix as the war for domination of France. And it may be that you get a knock-on where the Normans take the north half of France away from the Capets, and the south half of France gets to create its own Occitan country around Toulouse or Marseille or uh, 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 one of those cities, and you have two Frances as well as two Englands. And once you start uh, adding nationalities, literally adding nationalities to the map of Europe, you've changed everything. I think that this will be the interesting sort of acid test of the modern-day uh, divergence theorists as to whether or not it is all environmental factors that causes Europe to develop the Industrial Revolution. Because without a unitary England that combines Norman order and Saxon, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, uh, custom or um, uh, or justice, you're you're not, it's going to be very very difficult to get a a country that is capable of responding to the Industrial Revolution moment the way that Britain did. And I don't know what the, the sort of, you know, the, the larger outcome for for the European wider economy is once you take uh, England sort of uh, a little bit off the map or, or uh, split France in half. It's, it's really a, a toss the dice and, I mean, the entire cultural production, obviously, of the world from about 1100 AD starts to shift. So you've got a whole different, you know, everything. Uh, America probably still gets colonized, but 
maybe in this case by Irish and uh, Scots more than it does by uh, English, because they're the guys in the pole position in the North Atlantic. Uh, maybe it's all um, uh, Bretons and, uh, and, and Galicians as well, because maybe you, you've split up France sufficiently that Brittany is its own place, and uh, that means that then, you know, pushing south, Spain doesn't have the same uh, centripetal uh, influence that it, that it did. So does this then tell us that it's quite possible that history, as we know it, depends on the uh, poor Irish uh, getting the short end of the historical stick? Yeah, if the, if the Irish are actually the, 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 the guys who have to um, uh, suffer to uh, give us this current utopian paradise that we live in now, that may be uh, what it is. I mean, certainly if you look at, you know, they're not the only guys that have to uh, take it in the teeth. Um, you know, there, there are a large number of American Indians who would say, hey, what about us? <laughs> you think you got invaded by the British? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> That's nothing. Yeah, there's a whole panoply of raw deals uh, to get to our yeah. current uh, time frame. Yes, and um, uh, certainly as, as someone who is a, a great fan of the United States, one should never um, uh, one should never ignore the fact that there are an awful lot of uh, polities that were not doing anyone any particular harm when we came along and replaced them. So, uh, <laughs> replaced them, <laughs> destroyed them, uh, displaced, um, them. <laughs> displaced on the good days, yes. um, uh, uh, destroyed them. And so, uh, it is uh, a little thick of the Irish to be, uh, special pleading about it. But on the other hand, um, they're, that's the you know gift of being a literary culture, I guess. Our special pleading sounds better than other people's. And because the English conquered us, we get to do it in English so everyone can understand it. <laughs> uh, well, it it, uh, it sounds like Time Incorporated um, might let you do this as long as you're uh, willing to go back and uh, revert uh, exactly what you did uh, to create the uh, regular time stream. So, Just uh, make sure I can restore from the save point. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> so if everybody uh, listening to this is still in a recognizable country that they know... Uh, and with recognizable technology, I guess it means that uh, they did ask you to go back and uh, undo everything. So unfortunately, we're still stuck with people uh, puking up green beer uh, in the streets of uh, North America everywhere. <laughs> well, you know, the, as the Irish can tell you, after they uh, got settled by a bunch of Scottish Protestants, it could certainly be worse. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Open Metalcast. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep the lights on in our octagon by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. 